your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And he, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Um, so today I do want to generally um, answer the question, what is Jesus Christ's way of dealing with conflict? So I want to begin with the question, how do you deal with conflict? How do you deal with conflict? Uh, when I was a youth pastor, uh, for about 12 summers, I went up to Wiklemekong Native Reserve on Manitoulin Island, and our church provided um, summer uh, programs and, and just working with uh, the children in on the reserve. And I remember during uh, one summer, during free time, I was uh, just make-believing uh, space wars with uh, the elementary aged boys there. And so one boy, <clears throat> around seven years old, he was our captain of our make-believe spaceship, uh, our, our make-believe Captain Kirk. And I was like his make-believe Spock, uh, second in command, his assistant. Uh, and so we were flying through space uh, and the trees became uh, our make-believe stars as we were playing in a little forest. And then I reported with dreaded fear that our make-believe enemy aliens were upon us. Uh, and so my make-believe Captain Kirk commanded me, grab my laser gun, this little you know, kid, uh, this little boy. And so I responded, which one? And his clarification was, the big one. Right? So again, this question, how do you deal with conflict? His way of dealing with his make-believe conflict in that moment was to grab the biggest possible laser gun and just to, to smother, to, to just blow to smithereens his enemy. So now I ask you, coming back to now just more the real world, uh, how do you deal with conflict? What guns uh, do you wield? Uh, what verbal situational artillery do you bear? Uh, some of us, um, we just have a knack for counterattacking. We'll come back with a louder bark We'll come back with even a more witty, quick, uh, just argument to, to just shift the blame quickly. Some of us, we harbor bitterness. Uh, and then some of us, we act on that bitterness and, and we devise some schemes of vengeance and perhaps even manipulation. Uh, I was reading this past week in preparation for the sermon, a, a great thought on conflict resolution, especially for Christians. Uh, and, and this author wrote, most people either hate confrontation or they enjoy it for the wrong reasons. That's so true. 
Uh, sadly, the church suffers when we don't confront sin God's way. When his children sin, God desires to see us restored to him and to one another. And that's why Jesus deals with conflict resolution uh, at some point in his ministry. And we're reading that today and, and learning from that today. He wants his children to turn from their sins to a right relationship with him and with others. And rather than give up on each other, he wants us to persistently pursue one another. And though confrontation is hard, confrontation God's way is always best. And so Jesus' teaching today is irrespective of your temperament, irrespective of your personality. And some of us, we are just naturally a bit more tender, uh, kinder, and, and, and it, it, it just makes us nervous and anxious to think of confronting someone. But nevertheless, irrespective of temperament and personality, this is something that Jesus calls us to, especially as his church, as his children, as his followers. Those of us who are more naturally outgoing and it's easy for us to confront, um, hopefully we pick up ways that we can dial back a bit and confront gently and in the way of Christ. And so I like to say that conflict is normal, uh, but as Christ followers, how we deal with conflict must be divine. Uh, and, and so just to emphasize that all the more, uh, that's why John the Apostle writes in his first letter, uh, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. All that to say, it's important that we listen to Jesus' teaching here and get this right and, and just keep wrestling with this and working this out and learning to live this out from the right heart in our lives. And so I hope <clears throat> that as we work through Jesus' teaching today, that by the end there will be something stirring in your heart, that the Spirit will be working in your heart, a prayer similar to this, Lord, help me to deal with conflict as you have dealt with me. I hope that's what gets stirred up in your heart. And so what I want to do today in answering the question, what is Jesus's way of dealing with conflict? Uh, the way I was able to see the passage, it just breaks down nicely into the A to F of Jesus's conflict resolution, uh, the A, B, C, D, E, F of Jesus's conflict resolution. Uh, and so let's, let's dive into it. So first the A, awareness. What is Jesus's way of dealing with conflict? First, we need to have an, a certain awareness. Uh, where do we see this in the passage? As we pick up, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. Now, just to create context here, uh, I really encourage you always when you read scripture to do some work to get the context of the passage you're reading. And uh, just a few paragraphs before, uh, we saw <clears throat> um, Jesus paying for his temple tax and Peter's temple tax, uh, which is a big deal. And perhaps then right after that, the disciples are arguing and wondering uh, who is the greatest uh, in the kingdom of heaven and probably wondering amongst themselves who is the greatest and wondering, is it Peter? Maybe because he was shown some favor and Jesus paid for his temple tax, but not ours. Uh, and so it doesn't surprise me. It, it makes contextual sense that, that now Jesus is dealing with um, conflict. Perhaps there's some uh, just rivalry or, or just differences amongst the, his own disciples. 
And so notice here what Jesus wants us to be aware of. If your brother sins, let's just stop there. We first need to be aware of our standards. Uh, and, and when Jesus says, when your brother sins, the standard is God's standard here. Just that phrase alone refers to God's standard because the brother that Jesus is referring to is a fellow Christian, is a fellow church member, is a fellow follower of Christ. So that naturally uh, just uh, begs and, and draws out that it's God's standard for his church. And all the more the word sin, the word sin, it points to a moral, uh, a moral awareness, awareness of, of Jesus's standards, his, his values, his laws, his commands, um, what we might even call gospel ethics, ethics that come from following Jesus. And that ultimately points to a need for the awareness of scripture, because that's where we learn of God's ways, his standards. And so we first need to be aware of God's standards. But notice he also says against you. If your brother sins against you. Now, first, what this is not saying is uh, Jesus is not uh, espousing a self-centered, narcissistic, self-absorbed, subjective, whatever is right for me is what's right in this world and, and therefore, we can just come up with our own arbitrary sense of morality. No. But he is indicating, he is, he is pointing to some sense of self-awareness. And I would think that we do need to be self-aware in healthy ways as we come to a conflict. We want to understand, why am I feeling so angry? Why am I reacting in my heart? Why do certain emotions bubble up to the surface? And do I have certain thoughts uh, toward this uh, friend, this brother or sister that has offended me? And so there's a certain healthy self-awareness that we're supposed to be reflecting on here. Uh, which leads us then to the second step here of Jesus's conflict resolution, broaching, broaching. Uh, broaching, uh, approaching a person to raise a difficult matter, a difficult conversation. Broaching certain topics and conversations certainly is hard for some of us. But nevertheless, we see it here clearly that Jesus, uh, he asks, he even commands his followers that we're to take the initiative. Where do we see this? As we continue on, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Uh, Jesus cannot be more clear and simple. If you feel offended, no matter your temperament, no matter your personality, you are to go and approach that friend, that fellow Christ follower. And of course, this can overflow and be applied to all our relationships at work and family. But especially Jesus here, he is concerned for his church, uh, his, his what he called the last week, uh, his children. Now, the trouble is, oftentimes we don't go for whatever reason, whether we're afraid to confront someone, whether for whatever reason, our own pride or whatnot, we don't usually go. Now, what I want you to remember and remember the prayer, Lord, help me to deal with conflict as you have dealt with me. And if we remember that God himself is the great initiator. If you go back to uh, the garden, when Adam and Eve 
sinned, our spiritual and ultimately even flesh and blood forefather, our ultimate descendant. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, God, after he pronounced his judgment on them, we see this beautiful picture. It's, it's very easy to miss, but this beautiful, subtle, but very significant picture of God initiating conflict resolution. Remember, Adam and Eve, they were created naked and unashamed. And when they sinned, then they became aware of their nakedness and they interpreted that as something shameful. And what does God do as he banishes them from the garden? He initiates and he himself commits the first animal sacrifice and provides uh, skin coverings. He, he provides animal coverings for Adam and Eve. And that was a foreshadow, the second foreshadow of what God would do to reconcile us, that he would ultimately sacrifice his own son to cover us. But the point here is, I want you to see that God himself is the great initiator, that he approaches us. He approaches the offender out of love and care and longing to be reconciled. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus, his standard for his followers is that we initiate. If you feel offended, you are to initiate. You are to pray through the situation. Uh, first, work through the awareness um, come to an understanding of why specifically you feel offended or hurt. And as you have that uh, clearly uh, articulated for yourself and ready to share that with uh, your offender, that you go and you tell. You tell him his fault. Now, what we're to read and understand here, uh, when Jesus says, go and tell him his fault, it's not to lambaste them. It's not to throw verbal nuclear bombs at them and to just destroy them and to pour out your own personal wrath and, and, and bringing guilt and shame upon them. But certainly we're to think through how we communicate. And, and so our verbal language, what words we'll use, our body language, our tonal language, because we can say the, the kindest words, but if the tone is sarcastic, and if our body language is angry, then certainly those kind words on the surface mean nothing. And so, uh, nevertheless, the point being, we are to broach this difficult conversation. Now, Jesus, he elaborates all the more, and he gives the specific instruction. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is beautiful. This is just rife with grace. What's the significance of Jesus saying, first, go one-on-one -on -one between you and this person, your offender alone? Why? Jesus' point is to save embarrassment. The point isn't that you want to just publicly rake this person over the coals and tell the world, this person offended me, wronged me. No. If you deal with conflict the way Christ has dealt with you, and you, are, you have truly experienced his grace, his forgiveness, his kindness, despite your own fault toward God, then you and I are to approach and broach these conversations, these situations of conflict with the same overflowing heart between you and this person alone with an attitude, with a goal of saving embarrassment and just having a heart-to-heart, down-to-earth conversation full of grace. It speaks to the attitude with which we confront. Now, Jesus he 
uh, all the more, again, just wanting to convince his followers of why it's important to broach these conversations to take the initiative. Uh, here is what can happen. Uh, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, first, the if. Jesus is realistic that it might not go well. Uh, we all are human beings with free will, and we can make our choice. And as long as first we've done our part to pray through this, to pray up, to be uh, aware uh, and to be able to articulate and go with the right attitude and tone, certainly our offender might still have something going on in their heart, a certain stubbornness or pride that they won't listen. And so Jesus is realistic about, and that's why he says, if. Now, this listening, though, when Jesus says, if he listens, at this point, you and I would be uh, have, a, have a healthy humility to also realize that many times we are actually the offender. And so we would do well to pick up on Jesus' instruction here that we are to listen. We are to listen well. Now, <clears throat> for me, um, I offer this very practical way of listening uh, one thing out of many significant learnings in seminary, but this one is definitely in my top 10 list of uh, lessons at seminary that stuck with me in pastoral counseling 101. And it's the simple phrase, the simple phrase, you feel blank because blank. And that first blank is the emotion that you think the one that uh, you have offended is feeling. So you feel sad or whatever emotion word because, and that is your best attempt at explanation, explaining why they might feel a certain way. And my own testimony, this little formula done sincerely from the heart has helped my marriage, my relationship with my children, my coworkers, uh, my friends, uh, even strangers. And this little habit, this little conversational habit it really speaks to good listening. Now, let's remember why. Why do, do we want to belabor and really work hard in these healthy broaching uh, skills? Because remember, Jesus says, if he listens, if he's able to understand why you feel offended, then you will have gained your brother. And one meaning of Jesus painting this picture of gaining your brother is that this person now is growing towards greater wholeness. You're gaining the person that this person is meant to be as they recognize their own weaknesses and faults and they continue to grow and mature. And so I love how uh, Augustine put it around 400 AD, a, a very uh, sincere and, and, and deeply thinking fellow Christ follower, church father, and he, uh, commenting on this passage, Jesus is teaching on conflict re resolution. He says, this is a weighty matter, meaning going and telling the fault with the, in the right way, in Christ's way. You do this not for yourself ultimately, but for the offender. For the harm that the offender has done is not primarily to you, but to himself. Okay, you got to let that sink in. Augustine elaborates, if you fail to do the hard work of confronting, of broaching in a Christ-like manner, Augustine 
he, he raises the standard for the Christ follower. And he says, if you fail to do that, then you are worse than the actual offender. Whoa, that doesn't sound right to the average human being. How could I be worse than the offender? And Augustine goes on to explain, because yes, that offender has done you some, some harm. And by doing you harm, you need to realize actually what he's done is he's stricken himself with a grievous wound because he is sinning. He, he's, he's being a lesser human being. It's that whole notion when we stay bitter, like bitterness is, is thinking that you can just ingest poison and that it'll kill the other person, right? You're actually doing, the offender is doing more harm to uh, themselves. And so Augustine goes on to explain, will you then completely disregard your brother's wound? Will you simply watch him stumble and fall down and stay in his sin and perhaps continue to do that to other people? Will you disregard his predicament? If so, you are worse in your silence than he in his abuse. That's radically countercultural, but that is a fair and logical conclusion uh, from, from the gospel. Uh, as we think how Christ has dealt with us, yeah, this higher standard is a natural implication. Now, let me speak as a pastor. I have witnessed with my own eyes one too many a relationship, one too many a fellowship, one too many a marriage, one too many a church suffer for lack of healthy broaching, for lack of healthy conflict resolution skills, for people who have not found their own healing in Christ, who have not let grace go beyond just saving them to sanctifying them in their character, in their conversation. And so Jesus here, he, he is giving some profound instruction for his church. So simple, yet so profound to go and tell in a Christ-like manner. Now, if they fail to listen, this brings us to the third step, A, B, C, conciliation. Uh, this is similar to the word reconciliation. And conciliation just simply means mediation. Uh, someone coming in between to help reconcile the two parties. Where do we see conciliation in today's teaching? Jesus continues, but if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you. There it is, the mediator. Jesus is saying, okay, if it's not working out one-on-one, -on -one, then the next step is to find some conciliation. Find some people who can be objective mediators to listen objectively to both sides and to help you meet in the middle. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus here, he is not <clears throat> um, uh, instructing that we find other people who have witnessed the offense because that isn't always the case. You're not always afforded that. Um, sometimes the offense is just one-on-one. -on -one. And other people haven't seen what happened. And so here, Jesus really is speaking to healthy mediators, even though they didn't witness the actual offense, that they are sound, they have clear thinking, they will dispassionately and uh, without bias listen to both sides, uh, that every charge 
meaning what what you're trying to deal with that it may be established. And this word established in the Greek, it literally means that a, a covenant, in a sense, might be established, meaning just a clear, uh, and in the best sense, let's think of a lawyer who can clearly outline, okay, so um, person A is saying blank, person B is saying blank, and they can establish clear testimony uh, that can stand, right? Um, to put it in just everyday colloquialism. So what I'm hearing you say is blank. When I've had to mediate uh, between people or parties, um, it's always helped for me to go back to one side and say, so what I hear you saying is, and then the whole, it's similar to you feel blank because blank. And I repeat that back to them. And if they agree with what I've said, then I know that I am uh, establishing well, and, and I'm being a good mediator. Another way to uh, just make sure that you're mediating well, if or you have a good mediator there, uh, is is to ask, is that fair? What what I am saying and how I'm summarizing uh, what you've said, is that fair? Is that does that sound fair to you? This bleeds naturally into the next step, A, B, C, D, and the next step is discipline. My hope and prayer that. Uh, in at Trinity Grace Church, and really every church across the world, the Church of Jesus Christ, that we never have to get to this step. This is almost a last resort. Uh, it's not the last resort, but it's it's uh, the, the penultimate, the, just the, the second to last resort. And so Jesus goes on to say, even if that conciliation doesn't work, then now bring it to the church, the broader church. And Jesus here, he's getting to a notion of discipline, a certain type of discipline. And so Jesus says in verse 17, as we continue, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, again, first, let's be absolutely razor sharp clear what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying, okay, now you have permission to publicly shame this person. Now let's put it out on social media to the church uh, Facebook page and, and texting and whatnot. He is not saying that, okay? Jesus, when he says, tell it to the church, we need to ask, what does Jesus mean by church? Of course, broadly, highest level, it means the, the broader body of Christ. Now, Jesus himself, he's thinking of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 to 21, and even his uh, earlier teaching first one-on-one. -on -one. And then if that doesn't work, then um, look for conciliation and bring mediators in. And then so let me uh, bring up this passage. It's good to read um, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 to 21, a single witness will not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. 
And so Jesus, first, just a side takeaway, uh, we, we we're pretty sure, certain, confident that Jesus is basing his teaching on uh, God's first law uh, through Moses, the Old Testament. And so we should take the Old Testament as seriously as Jesus does. And Jesus is picking up on the notion that at some point in conflict resolution, you're going to need that higher uh, body of discernment and judgment. And that's why uh, the Old Testament instruction says, okay, then now you need to go to that highest level. First, you're appearing before the Lord. Let's never forget that even our, all our conflicts are in the witness of God himself. If we could remember every time we're in a conflict that God is actually there with us, I wonder if we would deal with our conflicts differently. But representing God are certain bodies of people here in Deuteronomy, the priests and the judges. Now, in the New Testament then, today, now that Christ has come, uh, that highest level would be the elders of the church. The elders who are meant to be uh, just immersed in God's word and have sound doctrine and sound thinking and reasoning and to have healthy emotions and to be able to approach subjects dispassionately and uh, fairly according to scripture. So another way to put it then, uh, what does Jesus mean by the church? It depends on the size of the church. Obviously, the smaller the church, uh, if your church is only seven people, then uh, to go to the church, that, 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 that step, it might make sense to go to the whole church, those seven people. But if the church is a mega church of a thousand, then obviously it doesn't mean to just broadcast whatever fault to uh, the whole thousands of people. So for our church and Trinity Grace Church, a healthy conflict resolution process would be first just one-on-one. -on -one. I, I hope that you will follow Jesus' instruction here. If someone has offended you, that you would approach that conversation first one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, then the obvious teaching of Jesus, the clear teaching of Jesus, one-on-one -on -one plus a trusted conciliator, a mediator. And then if it doesn't work there, then perhaps to your new community. And that's why it's so important to be part of a new community, uh, a group of brothers and sisters who know you well and uh, can, can speak to your situation clearly, objectively. And then at our church, at least, remember I'm just speaking to our church, then the final step would be to come to the elders. But I hope and pray that it never has to get to the church level because it means that somewhere along the way, someone has a deeply stubborn heart, which leads to the very sobering next step, A, B, C, D, E, excommunication. I know in English, that word is dreaded. It, it, it just, it's like I just dropped an anvil on your foot. Excommunication. It's a scary word, but this is what Jesus literally is speaking of. As we look to the text, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Where do we see the clear notion of excommunication? Now, first, let's just bring that word down to earth. Excommunication, it sounds scary, but what it just literally means, ex means out of, 
And communication is referring to community, out of the community. Someone is now out of the community. That's what it literally means. And in that sense, it probably is even scarier to, to be have broken fellowship, to have relationships and bridges burned. That is, to me at least, a scarier thought than just the word excommunication. Now, where do we see this? When Jesus says, let him to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, it, it literally means, Gentile means a pagan, an unbeliever. And so Jesus is speaking of people who are unbelieving and a tax collector. Now, remember, Matthew himself was a tax collector. And so he would know the feeling uh, of a tax collector, that they are outside of the community. They're marginalized. They're looked down upon as uh, second class because of their role in society. And so G Matthew's Jewish listeners would have felt the emotional force here of someone who is outside of the community. Now, we cannot stop there. I will admit to you, I have still a sinful heart as well. And when I first read this, my initial thought was to, okay, judgment. And so for those who refuse to reconcile, then they are judged and they're outside the community. And I feel that emotional force that Matthew's Jewish listeners would have felt. Now, certainly we do see even in the New Testament in Christ's church that this is practice, that people are placed outside of the church community for their unrepentant heart. We see it in Ananias and Sapphira. We see it in Romans 16, 17, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 to 15, and, and there are other examples. But we can't stop there because Jesus, in his wise ways, his sage-like ways of teaching, he always has deeper meanings. And so when Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, we have to pause. Jesus is masterfully teaching here because he wants to see what comes out of our hearts when he says, let them be as a Gentile and a tax collector. The natural response is judgment. But let's remember, let's ask, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Do you not remember that Jesus ultimately, he would declare clearly, definitively, that he has come to be a light to the Gentiles. What was Jesus accused of? Jesus was accused of befriending sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. Jesus is simultaneously saying, yes, there comes a point where even in the church, you will have to treat someone as outside of the community, but don't stop at judgment. You must keep loving them as I have loved Gentiles and tax collectors. Yes, I draw my clear lines, but that does not stop me from crossing over that line to pursue them with all my heart and love to the point of being willing to take their place on the cross for them. Do you realize how much Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors? He pursued them. That's why he came to this earth to pursue you and me or just as morally bankrupt as Gentiles and tax collectors. In fact, if you're not Jewish, you are a Gentile. And Jesus came to pursue these outsider souls, to love them into his kingdom, excuse me. And so Jesus goes on <clears throat> to teach here 
nevertheless the authority of the church. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, we're slowly running out of time here, and so let me just get to a summary point. What is Jesus teaching here? It is not, again today, let's clarify what it is not. Jesus is not giving a blanket uh, card to make God a genie in a bottle. Okay, let's, uh, two or three of us, let's get together. We want to become, we want to win the lottery. So let's two and three of us pray together, agree on this, and then God will uh, grant us our prayer, our wish. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Remember the context here is church, uh, is conflict resolution and right here, church discipline. And so what Jesus is saying, let, let me apply it this way. Our relationship with the church of Christ on earth, whether it's healthy or not, it's a pretty good indication of what our ultimate relationship with Christ and this church will be in eternity. You see, if you keep continue to have a stubborn heart and don't listen to uh, the teaching uh, through God's entrusted elders and uh, following Christ's way and repenting when we need to, and eventually that just logically leads to being outside of the community of the church, then most likely, most likely what will end up in heaven, in eternity, is that your final state will be outside of Christ's eternal church. And so we need to remember the foundation, A, B, C, D, E, F, the foundation of our all our conflict resolving. I want to begin this last point by just pointing to C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia. And if you read the line in The Witch in the Wardrobe, toward the end, there's this scene illustrated here of Aslan, who represents Christ, and the witch, who represents all the evil of humanity, the Babylon, if you will, in Revelation terms. And they are negotiating. How will, because what's at stake is Edmund's life. He is the sinner, and he, he is meant to be punished and executed. And here we see Aslan and the witch conversing, mediating perhaps, and they're discussing. And Aslan comes back eventually and says, we have come to an agreement. We have settled the matter. She has renounced the claim on your brother's blood. Let's go back and read this passage, at least verse 19, with a lens of wanting to see Jesus. And when Jesus says in verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Remember, the context here is reconciliation. And, and I want to ask you to consider that the most important conversation, conflict resolution that happened on earth, was between Jesus and his father. There are two and with humanity as that third person. Jesus coming as the mediator. And here on earth in that garden of Gethsemane, Jesus coming to earth and pleading to the father, if possible, take this cup away from me, but not my wills, but your, my, my will, but yours be done. 
And even on the cross, on earth, in history, on that Mount of Calvary, Jesus pleading with the Father, asking, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So Jesus here, he has acted as that mediator in the all-important conversation. And so when Jesus says here, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let us not forget. The whole point of Jesus giving this beautiful promise. This is one of the most misquoted promises in scripture. It's about conflict resolution. Jesus is promising his presence when two or three are coming to, to apply grace and to resolve conflict as God has mediated toward us through his son. And if we remember that Jesus is right there in our midst when we're trying to resolve conflict, then I think answering this prayer, Lord, help me to deal with conflict as you have dealt with me. It'll become more quickly a reality when we remember that Jesus is right there with us and we remember how he has mediated for us and taken our place.